0: This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. A young woman's repeated cries for help go unanswered by so many who were sworn to protect, resulting in a tragedy that could have been avoided at every turn. This is the Tiana Notice Story.
1: Megan, I love your pup, but she's killing me. I know you've said that
0: before. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I know. She's so adorable. It's funny because it's like she almost knows you're allergic to her and she just wants to be. She won't leave me alone. No. No,
1: she's she's beautiful. I love her. But if I sound a little stuffy in this intro, that is why.
0: I'm so sorry. I do adore Chloe, though. She's my shadow. Let's post the picture of her on Instagram. (gasps) Yes, we're posting a picture. Okay. Okay. You know, we like to meet all of your pups, too. Yeah, uh, so I love when patrons come too and um, they introduce like their cats and dogs. Yeah,
1: so last night we had a happy hour. We got to meet some of our furry friends.
0: Jen, it was Jenna, remember. She had like a span of her dog. Uh, there yes. might have been a couple others too, yes. but it's so much fun. We'll definitely post a picture. Everyone knows who Toby is, so yes. we'll introduce Chloe to the gang. Megan, speaking
1: of Patreon, we're finally at the point where we have quite the backlog of exclusive episodes on Patreon. How many do we have? We have just over a dozen with a new case every month. And next month is being picked by our patrons you know with those polls i do oh i didn't know we had tw- already 12 we have 13
0: time flies when you're having fun right speaking also of patrons we have some people we'd like to thank today all right we have sully eco connie
1: smidgen who is actually the name of one of our supporters cat who is 16 years old
0: oh I, know. oh I want to see a
1: picture now okay. i know <laughs> we also have ash lesniewski alicia Kate from San Diego, and Megan, we have a few others.
0: Yes, we have Michelle, Hannah L. from Walla Walla, Washington, Christine Lynn, Sharn, which is a Welsh name, And happy birthday, Skylar. Her friend Kelly bought her a Patreon subscription for her birthday. And Skylar is halfway to getting her PhD in behavioral neuroscience. Oh,
1: good for you. So cool. Very cool. cool. And once you get that PhD, call us. Let's collaborate. (laughs) I know. Other than becoming a patron, there are many ways that you can support us. You can follow us wherever you listen to our podcast so that you get notified when we release our new weekly show You can leave us a review, follow us on social media, and tell a friend.
0: All right, Megan, what case are we talking about today? Today, we're covering the Tiana Notice story. Don't know that one. You will soon. And now, I'd like to introduce you to Tiana. Tiana Angelique Notice was born on February 4th, 1984, to Alvin Notice and Kathy Lewis in Connecticut, where she was raised. She had three brothers, Tyrone, Terrell, Christian. And while her parents separated at some point, her father married... Again, and Tiana had a stepmother, Veronica Notice, and then a stepsister as well. So she had a big family and she was close, reportedly close with all of them. Tiana was an extremely intelligent, vibrant young woman who studied political science at the University of Hartford for her undergraduate degree. She then went on to pursue a master's degree in public policy and communication. Tiana was one semester away from her master's degree and she reportedly loved academia Beyond that, she also worked full-time as an admissions counselor at another school, but she was incredibly diligent and self-sufficient, and (laughs) way more so than I was, just so you know, at 25, probably. She was very close with her family, as I said, and her friends, and church was a huge part of her life as well. She was religious. In October 2007, Tiana met 27-year-old James Carter Jr. through her MySpace account. You know, that's how me and Alan started talking. No. Yeah. What are you talking? I thought you went to camp together. Yeah, but we hadn't
1: spoken in several, several. I knew him when I was 13 and then we re-met on MySpace. Are you
0: kidding? No. I actually didn't know that. I never had a MySpace account. What was the difference? Like what, What? MySpace was just, I, I don't really... Do you remember Friendster? No. No. It's like Facebook.
1: They're okay. all like, they're all early iterations of Facebook.
0: I don't know why MySpace went out, but that's fine. Back to the story. Even though Tiana wasn't actively looking for a relationship, she just had a recent breakup with a long-term boyfriend of five years, so it was, you know, serious. But she did begin to exchange messages with James, and eventually she agreed to go on a date with him. On this date, he said that he graduated from college, worked as a manager at an insurance company, did not have any children yet, and owned his own home. Why do I get the feeling he lied about some of that? Because you're very smart, Amy, (laughs) because you're intuitive. He told Tiana that he was also very involved with his church, which was so important to her. And James would often attend church with Tiana. So in the beginning, it was really good. How long were they dating for? Yeah, that's why I said in the beginning, but the happy times would not last very long. So they dated for about a year. The trouble really began when James was arrested for a domestic incident involving a previous girlfriend, and he was convicted and sentenced to five months in jail. Hmm. Tiana didn't leave him, though, just so you know. James explained, you know, he said that his ex-girlfriend showed up at his parents' house, caused a scene, was trying to break in. He had to intervene, and that's where the domestic comes in. Like, you know, he just mm-hmm. kind of pushed her, held her off. Okay, okay. And Tiana stood by him and, you know, he went to jail for five months. But once he got out, they got back together. You know, she wanted to be supportive. But things began to unravel when James revealed that he had a son, even though he had told Tiana he had no children. How old was the son? About five. Oh. And he couldn't hide it because he had partial custody and the son was coming to spend the summer with him. So, whoa, big like red flag. Imagine dating someone for like six months or a year and then finding out they have a child like that. That would have been the. okay. Tiana also discovered that when they met, James was out on bail regarding that domestic incident that he said. And in fact, she did some research and found out that he had a long history of assault and violating restraining orders against former partners.
1: Did she approach him about what she found? Yeah. I can't imagine he was happy.
0: No. And Tiana, despite all of her support for James and her loyalty, it was all too much. But on top of that, she found out he was cheating on her. So on top of all these awful things, and she just decided that's enough, like I'm done. But there was kind of a silver lining for her or something for her to feel hopeful about. So it appeared that she was getting back together with her former long-term boyfriend. His name was Robert, and they both wanted to rekindle their romance, and this was way at the end of hers. They only broke up because Robert was moving away to finish college And she was devastated. And I think that was her one true love. And so as things were winding down with James, she's finding, like, rekindling this romance. And so she was, you know, happy about that and hopeful. So she reportedly told James of her intentions and ended the relationship with him. But James was not taking no for an answer. He called and emailed relentlessly to the point where Tiana changed all of her personal information deleted accounts, switched phone numbers, just everything she could do in an attempt to avoid him. Did she try to seek a restraining order? No, yeah, there's restraining orders to come. The relationship disintegrated so much that Tiana asked her best friend's husband to go with her when she was getting her things from James' place, you know, when you keep some things. And then James went to the police station and had a police officer escort him to retrieve his things from her house. Just to make a scene? You know, he reported that she was, he said like she was crazy and violent and he wanted to document it and he didn't want to go alone. He was fearful of her and she was like appalled, obviously. Sounds like he's starting to plant a story. Yes, that's true. Then in January 2009, James was back at the police station again, asking to file charges against Tiana. Claiming that the two of them had a physical altercation, but of course, he didn't have any injuries, and after interviewing Tiana, the police found no probable cause to arrest her. But Tiana, at this point, was well aware that she had to protect herself against him. So Tiana applied for a temporary restraining order, which was granted, and James was served with this order it extended to family and friends but it was only temporary at this point and temporary lasted for 2 weeks so tiana would have to go back and apply for an, an extension for either another temporary or permanent order
1: do you know what it takes to go from temporary to permanent like why not just get a permanent
0: i'm not sure to be honest i really don't know in this in okay. this jurisdiction what the you know what the cause was but i think that oftentimes i think they are temporary and and then you do apply for a permanent You know, restraining Mm -hmm. order. So just the next day after this temporary TRO expired, Tiana received an email from a woman who she didn't know. And this woman was furious that she had taken out a restraining order on her boyfriend, James. And this woman's name, just so you know, is Jessica Banderas. Tiana was, you know, upset, told her to stop emailing her, but she sent several more emails that appeared threatening without directly threatening her. You know what I mean? Why would his new girlfriend care
1: if it doesn't make any sense? You would think the new girlfriend would be like, oh, good. Don't go near her.
0: Well, I think she, the the point here is that she's incensed. How dare you, like, take out, like, yeah. you know, make my boyfriend subject to this kind of you yeah. know, legal scrutiny mm-hmm. and whatnot. But Tiana was, like, really confused, too, because she'd never heard of or met this new girlfriend. She didn't know the name. And she just, she just thought it was really bizarre. Tiana called the police to report this harassment. And the police contacted James, who appeared very cooperative, giving them all the information they would need to look into his girlfriend, Jessica Banderas. Then, he applied for a counter-temporary restraining order against Tiana. And he also asked that this protection extend to his girlfriend, Jessica Banderas. The situation ended up with both Tiana and James appearing in court, you know, regarding both of their requests. And the judge just granted both of them restraining orders, you know, at this point. Just leave each other alone. Right. So she granted them both six-month restraining orders, I think hoping in six months from now, this will just be resolved. Like, Mm -hmm. we'll just be done with this. Shortly after these orders are granted, James went to his local police department in Bloomfield, Connecticut and brought with him what he claimed was a letter from Tiana saying she wanted him back, which would have been in violation of the restraining order. But, Amy, it was the oddest letter. Okay, I looked it up and I encourage people to. It wasn't like a letter you wrote or whatnot. It was a piece of paper with a printed photo like her, like a snapshot of her. You know, like her Facebook profile or her MySpace Mm -hmm. profile. And the letter was typed around this photo. And it just seemed really off. Even the police were like, this doesn't look like a letter someone wrote you. It looked like something he printed up and typed on to Mm -hmm. like falsify. Mm -hmm. But the police followed up and they asked Tiana to come to the station and answer some questions. She complied and she spoke with the police, denying that she sent the letter and even voluntarily gave her fingerprints So that they can do fingerprint analysis Mm -hmm. on the letter. You know, this is
1: getting... Sounds like a lot of wasting of resources back and forth with the police. Because I have a feeling that she's not the one who wrote the letter. So it looks like James might be wasting some people's time here.
0: Yes, wasted resources, good inclinations here. She wants to do everything she can to just resolve the situation. Then on February 7th, 2009, Tiana came out of her apartment where she lived and found that all four of her car tires had been slashed. Oh, boy. Right. So she called the police, but she had no proof that it was James. You know, in these situations, Mm -hmm. you need some type of proof. So there was no arrest that could be made, but she was getting really scared. And And she had a boyfriend at this point, Robert. Right. She did. Uh, But he didn't live near her. They were still long distance planning to reconnect. Mm -hmm. But she was close with her her father, but she hadn't, like, alerted him. I'm sorry, she lived alone? Yes. Okay. Yeah. She hadn't alerted her father yet to the seriousness of the situation, but she did on that day. She told him, you know, there's an interview you can see that's done with him where he realized how serious things Mm -hmm. had gotten. And she asked him to come over, and he did. He was also in corrections, a Mm high-level corrections official. And he came over that day and installed a security camera Mm -hmm. to record the outside of her home Mm -hmm. so that they could catch him, Mm -hmm. you know? This was, again, the first point where he realized how bad things had gotten. And Tiana also looked into James's background a little further and found that he he lied about everything. I already kind of said this, but his whole life was a lie. Mm-hmm. He didn't graduate from college. He didn't work where he said he did. He didn't own his own home. I mean, at this point, Tiana was really afraid because everything she knew about him yeah. was not true. And I'd be scared, too. Mm-hmm. And then the day before Valentine's Day... She got a phone call at her work from James, and though she hung up on him, he kept calling back. And Tiana reported this incident, which was witnessed by her coworker. It's also a violation, right? Total violation, yes. And it was good that she had a witness. But frustratingly, since she worked in Waterbury, and we know about, like, jurisdictions, she had to report it to their PD rather than her local PD, which was Plainville Police. Mm-hmm. Do you know Plainville? Is that Michelle Carter? Exactly. Okay. We do so many cases now that there's all these connections. I know. I know. And I'm watching right now the Hulu show, The Girl from Mm -hmm. Plainville. So you're probably watching that too. But anyway, so that's just for point of reference. Um, But the police officer in Waterbury who took her complaint and reviewed her TRO, which she brought in, said he didn't know if it was a real or fake restraining order. Why wouldn't he just get on the phone? Oh, you would think that's exactly what he should do, due diligence. But he insisted on having a copy sent over directly by the Plainville Department. Just one quick question.
1: Were these phone calls threatening or what were what was the nature of the phone calls? Do you know
0: the nature of the phone calls were don't hang up on me. Uh, this is James. I need to talk. Oh, to you." Okay. So are she they- didn't even give it a chance. Right. He's not directly threatening her, but. Even the phone calls, right, which we know, even the very fact that he was calling. And she's done everything right. Um, After the Waterbury Department said that she was very upset, she got in her car, she was crying, she called her mother, like hysterical. And she was very close with her mother and her father. Her mother also worked in the field of social work and probation. And she was incensed as well. And she contacted the Waterbury Police Department begging them to protect her daughter But they said it would have to wait until after the President's Day weekend because all the detectives were gone. And they told her, don't worry. Oh, so no one's on call? I mean, come on. Exactly. In fact, here's what Tiana's mother said. I'm just going to quote this. Then I spoke with a sergeant that said, oh, nothing's going to happen to your daughter. He snarled at me. And I'm like, look, I don't want my daughter to become a statistic. And I'm telling you now, if something happens to my daughter, you better move to another planet. That was the conversation. Oh, wow. Can you believe they just dismissed her and told her, don't worry. She'll be like she'll be fine because it's President's Day weekend. Wow. But when Tiana got home, there was also a note under her door from James saying that he never cheated on her and referring her to biblical passages, asking for forgiveness for all else he had done to wrong her. He didn't have a name on it, but it was very obvious. So he wants her back at this point or he's just looking for a free? Oh, no, no, no. Uh He's totally. So Tiana went to her video surveillance, remember, hoping to catch Mm -hmm. him in the act. But unfortunately, the tape had run out. Oh, boy. It was when it was before it was digital. So once again, she had no proof. She did go out and get more tape for the surveillance camera, like determined to catch him and put an end to this nightmare. Okay, Amy, let's fast forward then. And not much, but on Valentine's Day, 2009, Robert, who was Tiana's ex-boyfriend, who is now her, you know, current partner, was scheduled to visit her. And unbeknownst to Tiana, he was ready to propose to her. He had a ring, everything, like her dream come true. But in an unfortunate twist of fate, Robert got a really bad flu and couldn't make the trip. Oh, Oh, it's so sad. So instead, the two made plans to visit the following weekend and he just planned to propose the following weekend. That same day, Valentine's Day, James also sent Tiana emails saying that he was going through, quote, a life or death situation and begging for her help and pleading with her to contact him, but not contact the police. But Tiana went right to the Plainville Police Department with the evidence of Mm -hmm. this latest infraction. She's got the emails. She does. Again, she's doing everything she should do, everything right. When she provided copies of the emails, the police said that they would arrest James for violating the restraining order. Okay. And she was totally relieved. Like, finally. Okay. But instead of arresting James, you're not even going to believe this, a police officer from uh, the Plainville Department called him to discuss the situation. And not surprisingly, James denied contact Tiana, saying it must have been his girlfriend, Jessica Banderas, hacking into his account and doing their harassing. Oh, my God. Does she have
1: a restraining order on Jessica? Does Tiana have? Hold that thought.
0: So James was warned by the police officer that if they found out it was him sending those emails, he would be arrested. Do you understand everything that's wrong about this? They just tipped him off. Yes, I under. This is awful, and now he's going to be pissed off at her for
1: going to the police. Exactly. I'm assuming she also told them he. Well, the the
0: email said, "Please don't go to the police. Come to me instead." Yes, and wait till you hear how many times she actually went to that police department begging for protection. You're gonna. This is a shocking and appalling case. Meanwhile, she was planning on staying at her mother's that weekend because she knew, like, she, she was afraid. Yes, she was afraid. But she stopped home around 930 to pick up her laundry. Shortly after ending a phone conversation, she was driving. She had a phone conversation with her boyfriend, Robert. And she was like, I'm just stopping by to get my laundry and then I'm out. But as she approached her front door, she was attacked. And after lying on the ground in front of her apartment, Tiana managed to call 911 saying that her ex-boyfriend had just stabbed her to death. (gasps) This is what she said. I know we've supplied some nine one one calls, and you can see this. There's footage of it, but I, I honestly, I didn't. I, I felt like it was a little too gruesome, and I don't think it's necessary to play it on here. But she had the wherewithal to call nine one one to identify her attacker, but she also knew. Oh, this is what breaks my heart. She knew she was dying. It's God. it's it's really heartbreaking. Um, was the camera working? Yes. Okay. Neighbors came out too, and they heard her screams, and they were able to get a good look at the suspect's car. So he ran off. He attacked her and ran. Exactly. The neighbor stayed with Tiana while the ambulance was on its way. She was rushed to Hartford Hospital where she would succumb to her injuries. Where was she stabbed? She was stabbed um, 20 times all over her body and twice to her heart. Ugh, Losing so It's so awful. Losing too much blood to survive. It was just too much. James Carter Jr., her attacker, went on the run but called his brother and told him that he had stabbed Tiana. And his brother's girlfriend was sitting next to him and heard the conversation. They were both in So shock. that's two people. that Two people, okay. exactly. Um, and he was quickly found and arrested by the police, just so you know. It was something like within an hour, maybe two hours tops. There was overwhelming evidence against him, but he did not plead guilty. What? What's the point? Uh, I'm going to tell you. He went to trial in October 2011 and the point was because it was capital death penalty. Oh. Right. Okay. But still,
1: you would think he would have taken a plea to avoid the death penalty. Maybe they didn't put it on the table I don't though. know
0: if they put it on the table. Yeah, because they had so usually you do the plea, right? Yeah. But they had such I'll yeah. tell you about all everything yeah. they had. Okay. The prosecution presented the complete history of stalking and abuse which was well documented by Tiana. They had the surveillance. Well, at least
1: someone was doing something. Exactly.
0: <laughs> she was. They had the surveillance camera, which captured James as a perpetrator. Like, clear, it was, uh, I was going to say clearly, but it Mm -hmm. was a little bit grainy, but still clear that it was him. I mean,
1: eyewitnesses, confession.
0: (laughs) They presented testimony from his brother, who was, this is really sad because his brother, Brandon, was really close with him. And it was. He testified against him. He had to. He had to be honest. And his girlfriend, they testified about the confession. It also emerged, Amy, this is going to be the surprise that I don't know if you saw coming at trial, that there's no. Jessica Banderas. You know the girlfriend? Yeah. The emails were from none other than James using a fake email address. I'm wondering what the defense was. The defense tried to use the extreme emotional disturbance claim. You've heard of this? So this is an
1: affirmative defense where they're saying the defendant is saying, I did do this. However,
0: it's because, insert excuse. So the strategy at trial was not for an acquittal, but rather this reduced charge of manslaughter to EED. But the jury didn't see it that way at all. And James was found guilty of the first degree murder of Tiana Notice, and he was sentenced to 60 years in prison.
1: So Megan, again, this was in 2009? Yes. So he avoided the death penalty because Connecticut had the death penalty, I believe, up until like
0: 2012? Oh, okay. I actually didn't even know that. So he did avoid the death penalty. So I don't think Connecticut
1: has actually executed anyone since early 2000s. But it wasn't until 2012 that Governor Malloy signed a bill abolishing the death penalty.
0: I wonder if they had a moratorium on it, though. You know how New York had it yeah. like for a long time, but they just didn't, you know, put anyone against it. It must. I mean, they it had been.
1: And remember I said they had one in early 2000s. Before that, it was like 50 years, though. So they weren't yeah. really. It's
0: not like they were Texas who are just handing out, right? And I wonder if they thought the elements of this case for you know a capital case were just mm-hmm. not. And I, I don't want to say not there. Yeah, but- no,
1: I understand. What were there aggravating factors, right? I mean, it's right. a heinous crime, but in order to sentence someone to death, there needs to be a certain number of aggravating factors. And
0: maybe they just felt like also life in prison was without prob- the pot. But it's not. Did you say without the
1: possibility of parole?
0: I didn't say that. No. no. 60 years in prison. Okay. He effectively he has was, life without parole. Yeah. He was in his late 20s. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm going to assume that's pretty much, you know, life without parole. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Well, 85 percent. Did they do 85 percent in Connecticut? So if they do 85 percent, he's still looking
0: at not getting out until he's in his 70s. Okay. But he could still have an extra uh, another 20 years of his life. I guess so. No, you're right. Yeah. Which I don't love. You know, I want yeah. to see him do the full time. Let's talk about the aftermath, Amy, because a lot of things, you know, yes, okay, justice is served. She's apprehended. But think about everything I told you in this case and, and what Tiana had done to try to stop this perpetrator. In 2010, the Connecticut Office of the Victim Advocate conducted an investigation into the handling of Tiana's case, and they concluded that all of the police departments involved and the courts failed to protect Tiana. New legislation was introduced with the help of Harvard Law School and Tiana's family that changed how police in Connecticut would be required to respond to domestic violence allegations going forward. GPS would be used to track serious domestic offenders Mm -hmm. after a violation of a restraining order going forward. In addition, those who reported domestic violence in Connecticut would now be given what's called a lethality assessment questionnaire. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of that? No. Nope. It's great. It basically asks people to assess their fear or likelihood that they will be attacked or, or murdered. Lethality is murdered mm-hmm. by their stalker. So like, you know, rate it. How mm-hmm. high up do you feel? And I mean, that's at least an extra, you know, mm-hmm. part of the process. And Tiana's family was outraged at the lack of support and protection they received from the police they sued the police departments, mm-hmm. and they won a civil suit against Plainville and Waterbury police departments for negligence. Mm-hmm. And they were awarded $10 million in damages, which they used to establish the Tiana Angelique Notice Foundation, which provides surveillance cameras to victims of harassment and domestic violence among many other resources for those in fear.
1: It's so horrible, I but it makes me so happy to know that she didn't, I don't, I don't like when people say they didn't die in vain, but my point is that there's a lot of positive outcomes. It right. sounds like they were able to change the law, and now yep. they have this new foundation.
0: Yes, and I will say, I mean, I, I watched the interviews with her family, and they, while grieving and tragic, they very much are positive about the changes going forward, mm-hmm. and, and they did say, uh, like, you know, she didn't die in vain. Like, mm-hmm. there were all these great things that came from the tragedy. Poor Robert. He probably blames himself. Oh, yeah. I watched an interview with him, and he is such a sweet, kind-hearted soul. Mm-hmm. Like, you could just see the the life they would have had together. I, it's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. It really is. But there were, again, a, a lot of positive things that came out of this. So theory-wise, James Carter was a lifelong career criminal in many ways, committing acts of violence, but also, remember, he had a history of burglary, assaults. It just was lengthy. It's hard to know without having his whole profile what the origins were of this behavior because I I couldn't actually find like that much. So it's hard to know what uh, without having his whole profile what the origins were. But it's very clear to me, at least I I think, that he would have sustained violence and a lifelong offending, at Mm -hmm. least till he aged out of crime, which Mm -hmm. we've talked about. Well, he should have aged out already. How old was he? No, no, no. He was in his late 20s, I think. 18 to 25 is when it peaks. Well, it's when you peak, but you don't age out to oh, the late okay. 30s. Like, like it's a, like a decline, okay. yeah, like, like yeah. done, done. OK, uh-huh. so I think he fits in Moffitt's category of life course persistent offenders by looking at his past offenses and the continuation of offending through the course of his life.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you agree? Yeah. And then a similar theory would be the general theory of crime. Godforson and Hershey, when they talk about people with low levels of self-control and high levels of impulsivity, yeah, it seems like he definitely had a deficit when it came to self-control.
0: I think he had a deficit as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but interestingly, I thought about that one, but I also thought he had the wherewithal to sit in her bushes and plan and and- I see what you're saying. It wasn't like a- Crime of passion, so to speak. There was premeditation. But yeah, I see what you saying. But it was low level premeditation. Yeah. So it wasn't like he was thinking about it for weeks. Like he was triggered. So I, to your point, yes, he was triggered by that phone call. Yes. And then he just went, you know, but he did sit there and right. lie and yep. wait a little bit. So it's a good point.
1: I think about that, too. What about social control, given that he didn't it doesn't sound like he had a job. He didn't have many secure attachments. No.
0: Absolutely not. He
1: didn't actually go to church like
0: he said. Like no. He wasn't a churchgoer. So right? t- total lack of social bonds. And that's probably why, you know, he hones in on one person and like because he has got nothing else going mm-hmm. on. He was also very good at manipulating the system, trying to paint Tiana as someone who was violent, who harassed him. He was trying to make her look crazy, quote, you know, in an effort to disrupt her restraining orders and also, I think, keep her in his life.
1: I wonder if there were any techniques of neutralization in the sense that I wonder if he convinced himself that she was the problem. I think he absolutely did. And so it's denial of victim in that sense. Yes, I, I think he did.
0: What I want to focus on beyond the offending is the lack of action by the police department. So how do we Please explain that? Please tell me that people lost their jobs over this. I don't know. I hope so. I hope so, too. They were so, the police department was sued, but they had a couple of the police officers, like the one who didn't mm-hmm. like wouldn't take her restraining mm-hmm. Or they were sued personally as well. Good. So they were negligent.
1: So the police are not immune to civil action the way some prosecutors are and other officials. Yeah,
0: they don't have absolute immunity, so they were subject to it. But I don't know if they lost their jobs. I okay. I, that they, I know that they were found negligent, um, so I would assume so, but I didn't see the outcome in terms of their job loss. So, Amy, it's not necessarily a criminological explanation, but I think it's a cultural one of them not taking these threats serious enough. Do you think it has anything to do with the race of the victim? I thought about that. I did. I really thought about that. And I want to say no, but I, know. I just want to be optimistic. I just I wonder if, yeah. if she was white
1: and the assailant— is black, I wonder if the police would have taken it more serious. Or
0: the assailant was white. Either way. What I'm saying is I agree. Mm-hmm. I just wonder if any party was white. I, I did really think of that. Mm-hmm. And it's been quite a long time since the victim rights movement of the 1980s was introduced more punitive measures for mm-hmm. domestic abusers and many more protections for women. But I think the problem still lies within the thinking of certain police departments where if a victim is not outright physically assaulted, it's just not as serious.
1: Although it's clear, cases like this illustrate how quickly things can escalate. You can't wait till after the holiday weekend. I mean, that was literally the advice. This
0: officer said she'll be fine. Don't worry. I think there's a failure to understand the escalation, as you said, of these offenders. I mean, he was the perfect example. She documented the escalation. It was clear where this was going, and yet she was ignored. Just so you know, Tiana did everything right, obviously, at every step of the way. Her mother said, I don't know why they didn't take my daughter seriously. She went and visited the police station 33 times in six weeks.
1: Tiana did? Yes. Oh, wow. I thought it was a lot just based on the handful
0: that you mentioned in the story. 33 times. 33 times with documented evidence of his violations. And nothing was done to protect this woman.
1: The biggest tragedy here is how avoidable
0: this was. Absolutely avoidable. I don't see how he was never arrested with all this evidence I'm completely troubled by this case. And if you recall, I covered last year, as a while ago. Uh, do you remember the Tracy Thurman case?
1: Sounds familiar, but I can't think of
0: that. She facts. was also harassed by her ex-husband who was abusive and it escalated, escalated And in, in Connecticut. Huh. Police departments ignored her until she got stabbed in the middle of the street, almost to death by her husband. And she had filed all these complaints and they passed Thurman's law mandating arrest for domestic abusers. But I just went... It just reminded me of, you know, an earlier case. So I guess the difference was Tracy Thurman was in the 80s. We're talking about 30 years later. Yeah, so I would have get thought your shit together. I would have thought we'd come so yeah. much further. The laws are very complicated about domestic violence. So, I mean, they first began with almost no punishment for those who, you know, committed these acts, evolved to mandatory arrest. And now Which has some unintended consequences. So that's what I'm saying. So the the problem the problem now is that there's mandatory arrest, usually of both parties. So if, you know, there's a domestic situation, I point the finger at my boyfriend, he points the finger at me, we're pretty much both arrested, which has led to an increase of female victims being arrested. So that's not necessarily the best policy either, right? No, but I understand the
1: sentiment. I totally because understand. Because it's the sentiment. not fair to male victims. Because historically, it wasn't seen that a male could be the victim of domestic violence, and so we now know much exactly. So better. I, I understand why, yep. but yep. as all policies do, Megan, I know you teach about this a lot. There's, uh, you know, unfortunately, we have to figure out a way to fix the part that's
0: broken without right. causing further harm. Right. It's when we do like very broad policy yeah. that's the problem because mm-hmm. we throw the net on everyone. But let's bring it back to Tiana's case. Her family, the foundation, and the lawsuit have done a lot to bring more attention to domestic situations. And fortunately, the awareness has led to some very positive legislation. And that's her legacy. I just sincerely hope the police departments involved in this gross negligence have really reformed their culture and become much more aware on these crimes.
1: Yeah, I agree, Megan. There's no way to know how many lives this beautiful young woman has saved. Wow, but she has, because of what happened to her. You know, now other cases get more attention. So, you know, her family, they're so strong for being able to advocate mm-hmm. the way they do. but it's it's beautiful to see that there's some good coming out of such an awful situation. Couldn't agree more, Amy. Thank you so much. (sighs) Thank you so much for bringing up this case. I'd never heard of it. I don't think these kind of cases get enough attention.
0: I don't either. And I'm glad that we could bring this case to our listeners today. Can we end on on a higher note?
1: Because this was a depressing one, Megan. Do we have any questions?
0: We do. Before we go, we would love to take this opportunity to answer questions from our patrons. Thanks for asking, Amy. So Amy, can you read us the questions?
1: Yeah, so this one is from one of our brilliant supporters who is a speech-language pathologist. So cool. And she wants to know if people in prison are screened for brain injuries and perhaps even connected with services because, as she correctly believes, that untreated brain injuries could be a significant barrier to a successful re-entry into society.
0: Brilliant. And yes, very success. It's a, a barrier at every state. What's the answer to that question, Amy? Overwhelmingly? I believe overwhelmingly, no, they are not. I think
1: this would come into play more so during trial when the defense is trying
0: to potentially explain a behavior. That's absolutely true. However, since only three to five percent of cases go to trial, yeah. this is very rare. And no, prisons are not screening. Um, They are not screening people coming in for brain injuries on a regular basis at all.
1: Now, if you have an individual who's currently incarcerated who is displaying some behaviors that might indicate Mm -hmm. or some behaviors that might be indicative of a brain injury, perhaps at that point.
0: But even then, I mean, these are expensive, you know, screenings. Yep. That's why a lot of expensive expensive medical procedures are not performed because they are expensive.
1: Yes. But it is very well established that traumatic brain injuries are very much correlated with criminal behavior. Absolutely. Megan, in your area, serial killers, what percentage of serial killers Overwhelmingly, serial killers have had some sort of traumatic brain injury in
0: childhood. Is absolutely, that yes, okay. absolutely true.
1: And just for our listeners who might not have heard us speak on this before, when an individual has a traumatic brain injury, we often see difficulty with impulse control, difficulty regulating emotions, and poor decision making, um, among other cognitive issues.
0: All right. Thank you for the great yeah, question and the you insight. For that question.
1: Thank you. Um, our next question has to do with the Michael Peterson. Quote, staircase murder. Okay. So this listener has a question about the Michael Peterson staircase murder. And the supporter says, do you think he is guilty? And do you think he had an unfair trial? And I love that they say this, but I've always thought that he did it. But after listening to your podcast, I feel like I might have some doubt. So I love that people are getting that from our podcast. Because whether or not Michael Peterson is in fact guilty or innocent, the fact that people are thinking about these things critically. Yeah. Yeah and going back on what their initial knee-jerk reaction was, like, that makes me happy. Yeah, the openness. Yeah, I think that's great. And when it comes to Michael Peterson, I do not have a strong opinion. I lean towards innocence with him, but I have not read into the case as much as I know you have.
0: So I'm interested to hear what you say. No, he did not get a fair trial, which is why he prevailed on appeal, because of tainted blood spatter evidence uh, and testimony. And I believe there was also if I'm not mistaken, a perjury that occurred. So no, he didn't get an appeal was absolutely appropriate for him, as I think it's appropriate for other people. As to his innocence, very difficult question, but I think he is innocent. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think there was some type of accident. There are things that don't look good for him. I don't think he killed her. You don't think the owl did it? I actually sometimes do think the owl did it. Yeah. I mean, believe it or not, it's one of those crazy things that you go, wow, this actually is a possibility. Yep. I'm not quite sure. Um, yeah. it, accident, owl. Michael Peterson, I don't think he did. Then again, you present me evidence showing he would. I wouldn't be totally surprised.
1: All right. Our final question today is about aging out of crime. Okay. Can you tell us about at what point someone is considered to have aged out of crime? Okay. So so aging out, usually we see peak in offending during teenage years, late adolescence, early adulthood. And we see people typically aging out of crime by late 20s, even early 30s at times. Mm-hmm. And there are several different ways we can understand it. It could have to do with the brain maturing. It can have to do with social bonds, um, and as individuals get older, they have they form stronger attachments and they have stronger commitments. And really, to put simply, they have more to lose. Mm-hmm. People get married, they have children, they have careers. Mm-hmm. But they have essentially they also they have stronger social bonds. So. Yeah, stronger social bonds and better decision making. Right. Mm-hmm. We talked yeah. about brains maturing as yep. the brain matures. You're not yep. a, you're not as impulsive. Better decision making, greater
0: sense of empathy. Also, one thing I'd like to point out is, and I always say this, especially when people are really aging out of crime, like in their 40s, we just get tired. Yeah, like I can barely (laughs) shower, let alone like commit a crime. There's actually a physical component sometimes to that as well. So there's definitely a variety of factors. But the research is really well supported in this area that most people age out of crime. Except for your career criminals. Yes,
1: career criminals, which make up a small percentage of individuals. These are also known as chronic offenders or life course persisters. These Mm -hmm. are individuals that do not age out of crime. Do we know, is there any difference based on gender, race or socioeconomic groups as far as who's aging out and who's not.
0: I'm not aware of specific studies, okay. but I can tell you that it's definitely going to be different for f- males and females. Mm-hmm. Um but certainly I I don't know. I don't know the specific data yep. on um you know certain groups. It's just a general phenomenon yes, that people who exactly. commit crime age yes. out and I think it applies to most people.
1: Yes, and as far as I'm aware in the research, although there might be differences, they're not so significant that It stands out. Correct. All right. Well, thank you all so much for these thoughtful, interesting questions. Reminder to our listeners that we are also
0: weekly now. So there's lots of content for you. Yeah. Make sure you don't miss an episode. Yes. Catch up. Join us on the journey. Yes. And we'll catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga, edited by Jose Alfonso. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash crime. Sources for today's episode include an episode of Deadline, Crime with Tamron Hall, The Washington Times, True Crime Daily, and Current.com.